Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. And if this is the first time that you're listening, thank you for tuning in. Regardless, do me a favor and subscribe on whatever platform it is that you listen to this podcast on. If it's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, YouTube, doesn't matter. The best way that you can support this podcast, aside from sharing it with your friends, is clicking that subscribe button, leaving a review, and engaging on social media. Shoot me a message. Let me know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Any feedback that you've had to this point, I'll do my best to get back to you. My guest today is an author. She just recently wrote a book called Rescuing Jill, How MDMA with a Dash of Mushrooms Healed My Childhood Trauma-Induced PTSD. And this conversation really is a culmination of discussions that I've had recently specific to PTSD, as well as psychedelics and how psychedelics can actually be a treatment mechanism for a lot of depression, anxiety, and obviously PTSD. Prior to becoming an author, she had a professional career in technology working for Microsoft and really took a chance. Um, I have a lot in common with hers. We both come from that world of technology and it's not always the most accepting uh, in a professional environment when you talk about using illicit drugs. And in this case, it's illicit drugs that are being used in a medical setting and something that I think this country and ultimately this world would benefit a ton in. We have so much going on right now with uh, mental health in this country and although this won't solve all of those problems, the conversations that I've had really make me feel that this is something that we need to put a humongous focus on. So without further ado, please give it up for my guest, Jill Sitnik. But before we enjoy the episode, a quick shout out to the sponsor of the podcast, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. Listen, if you drink coffee and you're listening to this podcast, head to drinkaction.com, that's action spelled with a K, and subscribe for your favorite specialty roast coffee and natural supplements to be shipped to your doorstep fresh every month with a 20% discount. And if you want to save additional money, you use code word curious at checkout and you'll save an additional 15% off. That's drinkaction.com, code word curious, for the very best tasting specialty roast coffee you can find. And enjoy this episode. Thank you again for uh, taking some time out of what I'm sure is a very busy part of your life right now uh, to come on this podcast and talk about something that's actually been, interestingly enough, a topic of multiple conversations over the last two or three episodes. And my listener base definitely knows that I have a strong advocacy for um, propensity to experiment with and have had a lot of great benefits from psychedelics and different types of compounds, both, you know, early on recreationally, and don't think that I knew that I was getting certain benefits. And then as an adult, a little bit more strategically, but we also have a similar background in enterprise technology. And that's how I found you. I was like, during my day job, prospecting or looking through LinkedIn. And I saw a post that somebody had shared about a book that you had written called Rescuing Jill. And as I am very into these types of things I've followed along with maps and Rick Strassman and all the work that they're doing. I was very interested to get your point of view about PTSD and how MDMA with a dash of psilocybin helped you overcome that. So I appreciate it again. And uh, Jill Sitnik, am I, I was saying your last name correct, right? Great job. Yes. How has this experience been so far for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm super thankful to my LinkedIn friends who were like, hey, look what Jill's doing. Because uh, I've been, I just self-published by uh, April, which was an amazing experience for me. And I'm, I'm learning the process of promotion right now. And uh, I wasn't necessarily doing it on LinkedIn. I didn't expect it to happen on LinkedIn. But LinkedIn actually has a lot of resources for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy resources and research. So I'm finding it a very rich environment and I'm surprised about that. 
but uh, it's been great. Has the response to the topic base been different than you expected in line with what you expected? I know before we click the record button, I mentioned that I've had past experiences in that world where people aren't necessarily as open-minded about alternative type of opinions, maybe say it that way. Um, any experience with that or how has this been for you? Yeah. So what's interesting is that people who don't know me will sometimes make a kind of snide comment of, oh, you're just going to go trip or, uh, or wink, wink. What are you doing this weekend? Without understanding anything about my background, I, I had not done any psychedelics before I was introduced to it therapeutically. I was, I was so wrapped up in my PTSD and protection and things like that, that I didn't do any drugs. <laughs> so uh, the uh, flip side is that my friends who I didn't really tell anything to about my background or anything of that, you know, you don't talk about childhood abuse and things of that sort. Uh, they have been reading it and I'm just getting phone calls and people dropping by and people sharing with me incredibly personal things because telling the story of how psychedelics helped heal my PTSD, I had to kind of tell my story. And I think all of my friends were like, they just felt like I just told them everything. I just unleashed everything just to them. <laughs> so uh, I'm finding that when I say, are you aware of the FDA's work with maps.org and Johns Hopkins in terms of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? Suddenly people listen versus I say, oh yeah, I healed with psychedelics. Like it gives two different versions, two, two different kinds of responses I get back from folks. That's a great way to put it. And there's tons of research. I mean, you can look across the board. I've been lucky enough to have former UFC fighters, a gentleman by the name of Ian McCall. And he's uh, doing a lot of research. I believe his fiance is a researcher at UC or UC Santa Barbara, maybe. I, I'm sure I'm screwing that up. But she's done a lot of work with how um, psilocybin especially is beneficial for head trauma and with everything that's going on with CTE. And they're in early stage conversations with the UFC to do some like randomized controlled trials around ex-fighters to see if psilocybin actually helps them with any type of CTE, like, um, you know, I guess the onset of it, or even some of the side effects that they would have from that head trauma. So really interesting. And uh, most recently, I had a friend who has been taking multiple trips down into the Amazon to do guided ayahuasca sessions. And they've been documenting uh, the Punjanawa tribe and the effects of deforestation and yeah. capitalism and just even Western civilization on that tribe and how it's kind of slowly, you know, changing it for um, not necessarily the positive. So this kind of right in the realm of, of what I've been talking a lot about and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. finding interesting I kind of went on and on there, but. Well, I think you bring up a couple of important points when uh, when I was diagnosed by my therapist, I was immediately pointed to the maps.org site, maps.org. They have the, they are the ones working with the FDA on the clinical trials, specifically with MDMA for PTSD. They're on their uh, phase three trials right now. They anticipate going to the FDA in uh, 2023, which is very exciting. And in going back to your other comment about you know maybe the the rush to get ayahuasca as people start kind of hearing more stories of healing one of the reasons why i felt compelled to write the book is that i think there's a stereotype i've heard a couple of podcasts when i was researching that like psychedelics are like a magic pill mm. 10 years of therapy in eight hours or whatever number you want to use and I thought it was really important that people start to understand that there's a lot of work involved. Um, the psychedelics might open up your subconscious for healing, 
you as the person involved in the healing has to be willing to feel those feelings, remember those memories, go through the work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more that message gets out, maybe we can stem the tide of hurting the indigenous people who have been doing this for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years, because that's not fair to them, you know. How did you find yourself on this journey? I know that's probably like a, a question in itself. We could do a whole podcast on that. But, you know, there's one thing, I mean, going through the traumas that you go through, but then even identifying that you have them, because I know I daily think back on things and I'm like, man, did I remember things wrong? What's, you know, what, what's happening? Why do I have these triggers? And I'm sure that there's something to do with that. But I'm, excuse me, I also didn't go and write a book. So you know, what, how, how do you get yet, to, yet. yeah, yet, you know, you, you have this great career in technology, but like how, what compels you to take that path and share the story? Uh, well, way back when the dinosaurs roamed, I was an English teacher and, uh, love to read, love to write. One of my, the, when I do presentations, the bigger the audience, the happier I am. I'm just kind of one of those weird people. And I think I had always known deep down inside there was a book in me. I just didn't know what it was. And this experience with psychedelic healing was so overwhelmingly powerful that, um, you know, I, I'm deathly, I, I don't think it's going to happen now, thank goodness. I was deathly afraid of some politician making a stance and, and continuing to pass along stereotypes of psychedelics. And I wanted to be able to have a book to disprove so many of those awful stereotypes that we were all fed. I'm a child of the eighties. We were all fed in the eighties mm -hmm. that are just wrong. And so I felt kind of a, a real desire to give back. I had been gifted this healing I had an opportunity to go through it early, earlier than most people. And I felt a real need to kind of give back. And, uh, and I dare I say, you know, I was brought into this world initially because uh, my partner, Carl passed away and I met my therapist. And then 18 months later, I'm still going through grief. I have a major panic attack, major trigger. That's what starts the actual psychedelic uh, ex exploration because my therapist diagnosed me with PTSD when she started to understand my childhood, which I had just always taken for granted as it was just a, a bad childhood. I don't think I realized the degree of it until I read the body keeps the score. So I would say to your listeners or you, if, if you're feeling some triggers, if, if you've got something in your body that just doesn't feel right routinely, for me, it was my stomach, my neck, sleeping badly. The body keeps the score is what showed me what trauma does physically. It's really just a reaction in your body. It's unhealed emotions that are just, they're manifesting themselves through your body. And so that all kind of brought me to that huge panic attack, brought me to my therapist saying, I think we have to go a little deeper and for you to heal the PTSD, take a look at this research long story short, she and a guide working together over a full year process. I'm no longer classified as having a PTSD diagnosis. And again, just thought I owed it back to the universe to, to write a book about it and tell people what this therapy really is and also what it isn't. Do you continue treatment today? Well, you know, what's interesting is that uh so i quit uh i quit my job in january to write the book because i was doing it lights and weekends and it wasn't getting done the my fourth journey was so healing that i had this inner exhaustion my ptsd was very much fight and flight i constantly thought something was over my shoulders i was constantly hyper vigilant i didn't know how exhausted i was and so when I took the time to just sit and write and reflect, it was so healing. And uh, it wasn't until about three or four weeks ago, I actually reached out back to my therapist and I said, 
Uh, I've been doing really well. I still have some anxiety. Can we start to look at what Jill is like? What could Jill be like if I don't have the residual anxiety? Meaning I don't qualify for a PTSD diagnosis anymore. I don't have those triggers like I did before. I do still have quite a bit of maybe irrational anxiety. So um, we are probably going to be investigating that soon. But it took me since September, like my integration from September all the way down through like, you know, May, June to kind of come to the conclusion that I want to keep going. Mm -hmm. Was there a reason why MDMA was what was chosen? Was that the research and the direction that your doctor had kind of gone? And I asked just, I've had um, Dr. Mike Hart. He's a um, physician from Canada and he's done a lot of research on cannabis, but recently he's done a lot of work on ketamine and the clinical um, use of ketamine to treat depression and other types of social anxiety disorders. And he didn't really have a correlation as to why one worked more well than the other, um, but said that, you know, hopefully over time and as more studying of these compounds in a medical setting happens that they'd be able to understand and say, hey, you know, this specific type of uh, depression or anxiety would do really well with this type of psychedelic compound or this type of, I think ketamine is almost an anesthetic if I'm not completely mistaken, but it's, it's not like a traditional psychedelic, so to speak. But is that, am I on the right thing? Is just kind of more where the experience lied and uh, maybe symptoms of, and what they're trying to address for you? So uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the neuroscience. So everything I'm about to say is my personal experience. The, what the MDMA did, and this is all in hindsight, um, what it seemed to do, it made it so that I was suddenly able to talk about my childhood and after the psychedelic experience, which is called the integration, where you're kind of integrating the experience into your life, I was able to look at, they actually kind of floated into my being like, you know, when you're in a shower and you just have an idea that comes to you or you're taking a walk and suddenly your mind goes, that's how it kind of it was. But suddenly I was thinking about childhood stuff that I hadn't thought about in 30 years. And the difference was that the MDMA allowed my body to not freak out. So like, um, there's a great example when I was probably four years old, my father beat me, beat my mother. It's a big trauma point. And before the MDMA, I would tense up. My stomach would get all nasty. My face would get like, like I was smelling like a dirty baby's diaper. Cause just the hatred and the fear of my father. So that's an example of how the MDMA just allowed me to look at that experience without the physicality and the healing process was the trapped emotions from that four-year-old were that I was worthless because I was getting beaten. I was a mean little girl because I wasn't running up the stairs and trying to help my mother who was screaming because she was getting beaten. I must be the most selfish little girl at all. No wonder nobody loves me. Two, hey, wait a minute. My father was a real jerk. My mother was clinically depressed. Their behavior and, and what happened was not my fault and not a reflection on me. And I would never have been able to change that perception and look at that incident from my adult perspective if the MDMA hadn't calmed my body enough. And I always knew the doctors always let me dictate when I when and if I was ready for a, an additional therapeutic journey. I knew I was ready. And it was interesting when I look back at, at my journals, it was when my body was reacting. Mm. So I, I, does that help? Did that give an explanation what the MDMA did for me? It does. Yeah. I mean, I've only ever experienced it in more of a recreational setting, never guided. Um, but I've, I've experienced a similar um, openness, right? As to 
be able to share things with more inhibition um, or lack of inhibition, so to speak, and not feeling judged. And, um, you know, I think that being in a guided setting, especially if you're self-conscious about the trauma, that's, you know, really probably more so than when it's tied to childhood, right? Because there's a lot of shame to those memories. I think about things that happened when I was a kid and it's the, the trauma really is more from the anxiety and stress that came with, well, what if somebody else finds out? And uh, that's something that I've come to learn over time was really a trigger for me as I've looked at behaviors as an adult. I'm like, wow, why am I like, why am I so self-conscious about this or that? And I think back to, you know, just traumatic events as a child and how they all kind of line up to, you know, okay, I can deal with the, this specific event, but it's the aftermath of like, how do I explain this? This is embarrassing. And um, when you get older, you kind of forget about that stuff. You become more secure. You think that you're, you're good. You're like, Oh, I've, I've dealt with so much more. There's no way that that's bothering me. You know, I think that's been something else that I've, I've really learned. And yes, you know, be curious. I had a, <laughs> I have a, a an app, actually an episode that's releasing tomorrow. Um, gentleman by the name of Shaka Curtis. He's um, been on the podcast before. He is a former Marine. And after he enlisted and um, got out of the Marines, he actually went over to Iraq as a private citizen, as a freedom fighter, and fought alongside the Peshmerga to fight ISIS. And I didn't realize it at the time when I spoke with him the first time that he was very caught in the, he was deep into PTSD. Um, and to the point where he told me today, yeah, well, I mean, today he told me that he had a hundred plus days of psychosis where he paced, couldn't speak in full sentences and really was what drove him to start exploring ways to, to beat that. And he used like sound reduction therapy and light reduction therapy and, um, different types of uh, sensory deprivation, to try to help um, along with all kinds of other therapies. And he now helps others. Um, and we talked a lot about it. it was extremely powerful, which was, it's like, again, perfect timing to have this discussion because I asked him his past experiences with leveraging psychedelics for his journey. And although it's not something that he's done a lot of, he was really excited to know that I was speaking with you um, because he was you know, thinking this could be the next step for him. So, you know, it's funny you talk about the sensory deprivation, my most favorite, and I don't do it very often. I live, you know, Northeast is snorkeling. And when I try to think about why, cause sometimes it could be cold and, you know, da, 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 and I realized a long time ago that it is actually when you're underwater and, and you suddenly the world is just right in front of you. And, uh, I think PTSD sufferers in like only like having stimulus kind of like decreased and that's just my theory i don't i have no idea if that's a real thing or not so when you said that he used sensory you know temporary sensory deprivation i was like yeah that makes sense to me how old were you when you realized you had ptsd 49 (laughs) had you ever thought in your wildest dreams that that was what was causing anything you were dealing with? Not one little bit. I always just thought I had a crappy childhood uh, and that there were people who had way worse childhoods than I. I was at least fed. I didn't have great clothes, but I had clothes and I was able to complete a high school education. I went to about 13 different schools to do it, but like in my mind, I at least had that. And I knew that lots of other people had way more uh, traumatic childhoods or, or what would be described as traumatic. It wasn't until, and that, that shame that you talked about, you know, shame lives in silence. I think that's a Brene Brown quote that really resonated with me. That as soon as you voice, as soon as I voiced a lot of the childhood stuff that I had always kept to myself because I figured people were going to realize that I couldn't possibly be normal if I came from this kind of background. 
But as soon as I started voicing it and seeing people not judging me and not saying, oh my gosh, you must be a wackadoodle, um, it got a little bit easier. But um, honestly, my relationship with uh, Carl had been so wonderful and so loving. I think I look back and he kind of regulated a lot of the fears. Like I look at the behaviors I had and can clearly identify how they were PTSD at the time. But I think if you have a loving relationship in your life, it can, it can really put a dent in a lot of the fears that come along with PTSD, at least did in my part. It wasn't until his death and a year and a half into the grief that like my mind just kind of was like, you, you've reached your limit of being able to deal on your own. And I, I went into like a, a panic attack that wouldn't stop. So yeah, it wasn't until I was 49 and I fought my therapist. I fought her. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have a successful job. I have, I, I'm a successful pet parent. I've got a house. I don't have PTSD. Come on. It wasn't until I read that book, The Body Keeps the Score, that uh, I saw myself and said, okay, now things start to make sense. Yeah, no, I, I think for me, it's, and I think a lot of people, they don't understand what PTSD is. I, I had a complete misunderstanding of what it even was, you know, I'm like, oh, this is for soldiers or people who have, you know, been through really, really traumatic experiences. I almost felt guilty or would have felt guilty thinking that I had PTSD to your point, because my childhood wasn't that bad, but it begs the question, what are the triggers for that to happen? And, you know, can one person end up with PTSD for something that's far less severe or traumatic than somebody who has? And that's, you know, that kind of plays into it. At least it would for me, because I'm very much like weighing, well, what's going on? Oh, I can't say something. They've dealt with that. Or I've, you know, I'd be silly to voice this complaint that it's troubling for me because, you know, these people have gone through way worse. I, I love that you're talking like this. I love it because it, it mirrors exactly what I was going through. And I was actually just talking to a friend of mine and she was talking about um, a pretty traumatic experience that only happened about five years ago. And she downplayed it. She downplayed this, this really tough experience that she had. And I said, look, it sounds to me like you have a trauma point. You're still tearing up. You're still getting physically upset. Trauma is very personal. And all trauma is, according to Jill Sitnik, <laughs> is when, when we still have emotions that are trapped around certain memories and certain events. So it could be, in my opinion, we could have PTSD symptoms because we were bullied when we were children. We could have PTSD symptoms because we were in a couple of, I'm looking outside, a couple of automobile accidents, like two or three in a row, and you just, you, we never got over it. Um, I, one of my biggest trauma points was something that happened to me when I was 16 that people would have been like, Jill, duh, that wasn't your fault. Like your parents did that to you. But for me at 16, that was huge. So I love that you just talked about, I'm, re, I'm paraphrasing what you said, trauma is super personal. Just because, you, just because somebody else went through something that you might think was really horrific and you didn't go through that does not discount at all the fact that all of us probably have some trapped, painful emotions that need to be healed. And if you have way too many of them and they kind of take over your rational thought, you're in PTSD territory. Is this research? I mean, I, I know the answer already, but is it moving fast enough and can it move fast enough to keep up with what I think is a growing need for people to be treated? And I think it's a growing need because a, I think there's been a lot of people over time that never realized the trauma that they're carrying along with them. So those, those people have never been treated. They need treated. But I also think that there's a lot more trauma in the world when you think about how much data is being thrown at people from social media. I mean, I've been reading some really interesting statistics about 
teenage girls and teenage boys and how suicide rates are through the roof and they all line back up with the onset of social media. And, yeah. you know, it's correlation, obviously, but there's a very strong correlation. And so you have all of this happening and, you know, then you have all these mass shootings, right? I mean, just look no further, uh, you know, yes, all the regulations that we can do that are, you know, not infringing on humans' freedoms, but I agree, let's have, you know, let's have rules and restrictions so that crazy people don't have guns. I'm all for that. But the deeper question that I'm asking is, why are people doing this in the first place? Because that is a question that we're not discussing. And it really scares me because we're really dead set where, I mean, I saw we just passed laws today, more red flag laws, and I'm sure at the end of the day, lives will be saved because bad people will not be able to get their hands on guns. But I've talked with a lot of police officers and they tell me some pretty scary shit, which is that most of the guns that we take off the streets are, you know, scratched off serial numbers. They're illegal. They didn't go and buy them, you know, the right way. So knowing that I'm somebody who lives in reality and I want to know how do we help people? And I, back to my initial question is, is this moving fast enough? Because a lot of the traditional ways of treating these things, and I don't want to stereotype anybody who has gotten benefit. There's also a strong correlation of, you know, anti psychosis type drugs that are present with people who do horrible things. And so I am all for these types of treatments that are way more natural and allow people to heal in a way that's not chemically induced, if at all possible. And I'm sure that, you know, there's doctors that are pulling their hair out if they're listening to this right now, because I am not one again. And I know medicine helps a lot of people, but it's the easy button. We just throw medicine at people after talking to a doctor for five minutes. And I think it's commendable that yours actually took the time to look at a, a treatment path for you that was maybe unconventional, but that obviously has worked and that is showing that it's beneficial and very safe for people time and time and time again. And I don't think you can wait any longer. I mean, homelessness, guns, everything to me comes back to mental health and how much of that is stemming from trauma, right? I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but you know, I guess for the third time, is it, is it moving quick enough and can we move it quicker? Well, so let's, let's talk about that. And again, this is just based on what I know, which is probably one-tenth of what's out there. Number one, there are a lot of companies out there that are looking to patent certain parts of psychedelics to make the process. I mean, my therapeutic journeys could last anywhere from five to eight hours. That doesn't necessarily fit into a uh, traditional insurance model. So there are a lot of folks, and you can go on YouTube and look at psychedelic investing and there's a ton of companies out there that are doing that are doing their own research to try to I'm, I'm going to make up a word make a compound that can be insuranced <laughs> so that you can scale because you know you should have a treatment that is available to anybody in any socioeconomic class and at least the first step is making sure that it can be put into an insurance um, bundle for lack of a better term. Secondly, I think my personal opinion is that, uh, there are not going to be enough practitioners when the FDA actually approves the, uh, continued use of MDMA for PTSD. And I get a little concerned about that. You know, I hit the jackpot with my guides who were both medical doctors um, I don't know how the licensing is going to work. I've been doing a little research. I think I'd like to become a guide. What are the programs out there? Are there enough of them? And how do you make sure that a license is a valid license? Because, uh, you know, when you're on a psychedelic state, I don't know if the word is vulnerable, but I will use the term, like, I don't even know if there's a term for it. I greatly appreciated the expertise that my doctors had. And um, I would not have felt safe 
if I didn't know that these people had the experience and, and the licenses and the degrees that they had. So my concern is that this is going to become available. Suddenly there's going to be, and I'm making this up. I have no idea if this is going to happen. There's going to be weekend sessions for people to suddenly become guides and you get some sort of sheet of paper and there's suddenly going to be people who are unqualified. I really hope that isn't the case. That's a Jill Sitnik fear. Yeah. Like the gas station pill. I, I totally, totally hear you. And I, you know, it's, I think it's already somewhat prevalent in that space, right? Because there's a lot of woo, right? I, I was telling you about my friend he, who's been doing the documentaries in the Amazon. And he told me the very first time that he went down there, he was mm -hmm. with a group of eight people and a Western shaman from upstate New York who had God. the relationship with the tribe down in the Amazon. They went there with them. And this guy had an ego break and thought he was like the star of this documentary. And after a week, he left them in the jungle by themselves. And they were like stuck there with this tribe and no idea like what to do. And they ended up staying for another three weeks. And it actually wow. was the start of what has been now a beautiful relationship. But I think it just speaks to, you know, I, I mentioned to my wife, I'm like, I would really love to, to maybe go with them on their next trip and meet these people and help them replant the forest. And it could be a really cool experience. And she's like, you have two kids, like you're crazy. <laughs> but also like, you know, did you, did you not hear what he said happened? And you know, right. it makes you think right. that, yeah. that people just take advantage of, to your point, vulnerable people, vulnerable, I think, prior to the experience, because you've probably tried everything else. And you're just like, yes, help really me, strong. save me. And yeah. vulnerable also in the sense that set and setting is so important for these experiences, right? And that's the, the trick to your point, right? You took MDMA, you felt way more relaxed and comfortable to actually reflect back on experiences that were the cause of your trauma. And right. so that vulnerability environment. Yeah. And it's that, that vulnerability is what's giving you the ability to overcome the trauma, but it's also the, the back door that might allow the bad actors to slide in and take advantage of very vulnerable people. And all it takes is one of those stories, right? Some young girl and her friend that go to the Amazon or they go to a doctor in Austin, Texas, because they want to try to overcome some trauma you know, awesome. and, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like they, they were taken advantage of or somebody goes missing or, you know, now that's the front page news story and all of it gets smothered to smithereens and all kinds of people miss out on the benefits. I hate to like go down this rabbit hole, but that's, that's what I fear, you know? There's already a podcast out there. One of those, I'm not a crime, I'm not a crime drama podcast person that like that takes 10, 10 sessions to get the story out. But there's already one out there of a young lady who had a very negative experience. And I haven't even listened to it because it was for about three weeks, it was clickbait everywhere. And I think it's also super important to get, number one, the story out of how healing can happen successfully when it's monitored and it's appropriate. And also for people, because I think the vulnerability also would apply of okay, I had, a I had a therapeutic journey in the jungle or where wherever, and two weeks later, I'm not healed. Oh gosh, I need to know, now schedule another one. Instead of understanding the integration process can take weeks. In my instance, it took months. Like people who are scheduling with, without a doctor's assistance to kind of work through things who suddenly just want to like keep scheduling experiences without, it's almost like physical therapy. You know, you don't go and get, I had, I broke my wrist once. So I don't go and get my wrist set and then just figure, oh, I'm done. I just have to keep getting cast. No, once it's off, I have to do the exercises. I have to go to physical therapy. You have to put the work in. And I think the vulnerable folks could be taken advantage of by people who just keep saying, hey, give me a thousand dollars for another journey. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah, yeah. like that either. I'm glad that you bring up the work. You mentioned it earlier but it's been brought up in the conversations that I've had to this point where people have said, you know, they'd get back from these journeys and their shaman or their guide would tell them, you know, kind of keep it low key. Don't you're, you're going to want to maybe react to things because 
you're going to view them differently now, but don't like that's part of it. You almost just have to kind of allow yourself to see things as they are and that you you can't expect that this journey is going to change things overnight to what you, you know, said earlier. And it's been for him a four year process. And he's like, it continues, you know, maybe uh, fewer and further between, but it certainly continues and it gets more and more specific and tailored to individual aspects of his life that he's kind of putting his finger on. And I found that very interesting, you know, because we all look at things from such a 30,000 foot view of our lives sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I know maybe at least that's the strange way that I look at my life, but um, very rarely do we, I think, dive in honestly, we dive in, we dive in from with the perspective of 30,000 feet as we're down inside of there with our eyes closed. It's like we're navigating in the crap with our eyes closed with the, with the view of it from up high. And it's like, no, open your eyes and see it for what it really is. And uh, I, you know, like I said, I have not done a guided trip at all um, or journey, but the few times that I've had some pretty just impactful moments I'll never forget and they've changed my my perception of events in my life things that used to bother me I've kind of said wow like it's just not a big deal so I'm I'm really excited for the future of this as it does become more prevalent as long as it stays inside the bounds of keeping people safe and happy well and I think there's hindsight is always 2020 I think with the right set and setting and with setting an intention for healing, you know, practically anybody can get some good work done if that's what they want to do with their intention. What I was surprised about, I was surprised at how much my brain or my subconscious or whatever was actually afraid of healing. There were, if I hadn't had the guided experiences or those experiences with doctors purposely um what they do is they actually just follow the patient what and i'm a chatty person so whatever i would talk about they would just guide that conversation there was no like there was no therapizing they weren't telling me things they were simply guiding the conversation along and for some of the really tough trauma I know for a fact, I would not have gone close to by myself. First of all, I wouldn't have had the experience of how to do it. Uh, But then even after understanding how journeys work, they were just too, the trauma was too scary to face on my own. And um, I hear people talking now about some of their traumas and just how people have gone through some really tough things and I don't want, I don't want people to say, oh, let me just go do a little mushroom journey on my own and expect amazing things. I think maybe you'll get 20 or 30%, or if you don't have any trauma, it could be absolutely amazing. Like Michael Pollan in his book, he had amazing stuff happen. Um, I know for me, if I hadn't had people there holding my hand one time, actually literally holding my hand, it would have been too scary. The shame would have been too great. And the fear was too scary. So I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky. Did you learn things or unveil things that you did not realize? Like completely, not that you are like, oh crap, now I remember that, but that you had no recollection of up until that point? Um, I didn't have, that wasn't my experience. Interesting you mentioned that because I've heard that a few times with MDMA that people remember things that wasn't my experience. I had a, um, my, my third journey with MDMA was brought about because I had a nightmare about myself when I was five years old in my childhood home. And I had the face of a monster and through talking lots of talk therapy. I mean, I was meeting with my therapist every two weeks, lots of talk therapy. Uh, for some reason that image of that little five-year-old Jill was with me and I couldn't get her out of my childhood home. There was literally no door to the home. And I was saying to my therapist, 
I don't understand why this dream and this image is so clear and just so important, but we got to deal with this. Like, this is something. And within, I would say maybe an hour and a half, two hours, don't quote me on the time, under MDMA, my doctors said, okay, now I think it's time that we get Jill out of her childhood home. And my response was, upstairs Jill or downstairs Jill? And for the very first time, my subconscious was finally speaking up that I had a little five-year-old Jill stuck in her childhood bedroom, uh, emaciated, starving, half the size of a five-year-old. She was trapped in her childhood room and all she knew was that anything outside that door was scary. Adults couldn't be trusted. They hit you, they commit suicide, they try to leave, da, da, da. And so much of my PTSD symptoms were this inner terrified five-year-old girl. Would I have known that without a psychedelic or the two previous journeys beforehand to trust my guides? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's powerful. Have you had any experience or conversations with therapists or others that have done any microdosing and benefited from that? And is it um, possible with MDMA? I guess, it, I, theoretically, I guess it could be, although you're kind of releasing serotonin, right? So that it might not be the smartest thing to do that on a daily basis. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody. I haven't, but trust me, I am not the wealth of knowledge on this topic. Sure. Uh, I've only heard and been following people microdosing on psilocybin and microdosing at such a level that you don't even notice it. Um, I've done it once or twice. Usually what microdosing does for me, it's like when I'm coming, when I can't figure out a problem or I need like an extra dose of creativity, there was actually a chapter I was struggling with. <laughs> and I took a tiny, tiny, tiny little dose. And sure enough, the next morning, and I, as I was walking, I was like, oh, there you go, I can solve it. Uh, but I don't know folks who are like, I haven't found anybody who is like, I have definitely figured out the exact way that microdosing helps me do X, Y, Z. My personal opinion, again, I'm not deep in the culture, is that people are still figuring it out, what works for them. Yeah, I'm sure it's different for everybody. I've never, I've no, I don't know anybody that's microdosed MDMA. I've tried psilocybin. And it's funny you say that it kind of has helped you, you know, answer a question or solve a problem that I've tried Adderall. I've, I don't know if I have ADD, um, never been diagnosed, but a handful of times I had to pull small nighters and was focused enough by taking somebody else's Adderall to get a paper done in college. So, you know, shame on me, but I know that feeling of how taking a prescribed medication can help you focus. And I would Mm -hmm. tell you that taking a low dose mushroom gave me a cleaner version of that if that makes sense it right just creates clarity it takes away all of the clutter and maybe i'm just unique or there's a group of people who are unique like that that just constantly racing thoughts anxieties and unable to really focus on any one thing long enough to kind of get it taken care of and sometimes it's worse than others but that low dose psilocybin did that for me so Uh, Very interesting that you bring that up. And it's also interesting too, that, you know, all the, all the fears we were fed about psychedelics, in my opinion, psychedelics are the absolute opposite of something that is um, addictive because it's like, I think I've microdosed three times. (laughs) It's not something for me that I would take. I think, I think the Stamets, am I getting that right? The Stamets protocol, like four days on four days off kind of thing. Um, They kind of wear off if you take too much of them. It's fascinating. So I'm, I really hope there's a lot more research about microdosing because I think it could be amazing for people. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. So I I did want to ask you, how long of a process was this writing the book? Was it a a very big undertaking or did it flow pretty naturally for you? Well, so uh, I'm an English teacher. Well, I was an English teacher. 
I love writing. What my guides said to me, and I would give advice to anybody who decides to go on a, a, a psychedelic therapeutic journey, that during the intentions, I'm sorry, during the, the uh, integrations after the actual journey, be sure to either journal or uh, dictate into your phone any and all thoughts, perspective shifts, because my doctors were correct. They said, Jill, if you don't document how your brain is working, you're going to forget that you even thought a certain way. They described it as like, do you think a butterfly remembers or takes time to even think about what it was like as a caterpillar? And it was the best advice ever. So after my second journey, my first journey, I was very closed. I was very scared. My second journey was way more successful. And it was after the second journey that I started to look at my journals and I said, I think I have a book here. So I started to organize my journals and start to think about the structure of the book halfway through the process. And um, after my fourth journey, so like I, my first journey was in September. My, my fourth journey was the year after September. It was at that point that I said, I need to concentrate on this full time and um, started doing that in January. Have a, had a wonderful editor who was one of my English teacher colleagues who told me to make it more of a story, take away some of the clinical stuff. And I was self-published by April. It wow. just kind of, it was really, really good to spend time and work on it and, and produce something I'm proud of. And it's a short book. Like, I don't think publishers would have ever looked at it because it was only, I think, like 50,000 words. Um, and it's very much my voice. You, you get to know me. People, people have commented how much they feel like they now know me. They can hear me. They can hear me talking to them through the book. <laughs> you share a lot about your your past the traumas themselves or like what's the what's the flow of that do you kind of lay that groundwork at the beginning i'm excited i'm definitely going to go check it out so it's so funny you say that because i thought that would be the easiest thing to do and my editor was like no no one's going to go all through this it's too sad and i'm like it's too sad like i totally don't have the perspective of of my own life so what we decided on was much more of a chronological that I tried as much as possible to have the reader experience the healing as I did it. And so what I did when, when I looked at my journals, I picked out the memories that um, kind of applied. And so throughout the book, it's chronological for that year of the healing. And I, I formatted like, here's the memory that came up because some of my early beta readers actually said, Jill, uh, this is too triggering. These memories are really harsh. I was like, what? Uh, so I had to separate the memories out. And I wrote in the introduction, look, you can totally understand the book without reading about my stuff um, if, if it'll be too triggering for you. And I've actually had people say to me, they, they picked up the book and they had to put it down for like two or three weeks to absorb the beginning because they just don't like reading that stuff, but they had they understood why I had to put it in there. Because mm -hmm. if I don't give you the memory and how I changed the perspective on the memory, then the healing wouldn't make sense. Because that's what the healing is. It's literally looking at a memory that was awful, that you had trapped emotions. And it's it's the secret of therapy is literally changing your perspective on something. And so I had to kind of share the memory to show the progress of changing the perspective. Does that make sense? It definitely does. Okay. Is, is there a second part of this where, okay, you change your perspective on a past memory that's triggering post-traumatic stress for you, but is there a, like, obviously people are then, if you, if you're dealing with that and you have to shift your perspective because you're suffering from PTSD, do you also need to learn how to set a different expectation or approach things differently so that you don't put yourself in a spot to have to deal with trauma again on the backside? I don't know if that makes sense. So like um, if I know that something is a trigger because I, as a child felt 
maybe self-conscious about a situation as an adult going into a situation with an expectation that's going to put me in a spot where I feel self-conscious. I wonder how much of it is actually avoidable once you've kind of gotten on level ground and know that your triggers are all really just an accumulation of future events that are going to happen. So it's like, if I don't make it triggering, and that's probably way easier said than done, I can avoid even needing to have to go back and unpack this stuff and look at it differently than I did in the first place. I understand your, thank you for, thank you for rephrasing it. I still, one of the reasons why I approached my doctors again, well, my therapist again, with some of the anxiety stuff is that I've noticed like as a child, if in my instance, my father about to beat me, my body goes into, you know, just protection mode. Your, your heart skyrockets, your cortisol is probably insane. Your head gets fuzzy. And part of my PTSD was I would have that very same reaction to like a work email that was, you know, a level one out of a 10, but my trauma, it was a trigger brought me up to a 10. Mm -hmm. What the, what the therapy has allowed me to do, it has allowed me that unfortunately I still sometimes have those crazy responses to things. What it has allowed me to do is realize, okay, wait, this is, this is an out of proportion response you're having. This is old patterns. How do you now work your way out of this pattern? And oddly enough, walking. Uh, I was listening to the Huberman podcast and he was talking about anxiety and the process of our eyes and what happens when we walk. Mm-hmm. And I have found I mean, I still want to continue with another journey to see if I can even get a little bit deeper to release some of that anxiety. But at least now I can identify what's happening instead of like freaking out. I can actually say, wait a minute, this is a response from childhood. This is really not real. And if I have some motion, if I go for a walk, if I jump on the bike, um, if I get away from the computer or like, as long as there's some sort of motion, it greatly helps me regulate myself. And I think that's important for folks to find whatever helps them regulate themselves. Because like you said, you know, you're having a trigger to something. You either have to heal that trigger and, or you then have to work through like, well, how do I live the rest of my life? If this is going to be a trigger that I have. Yeah. 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 I heard something too, that I'm still trying to process. Um, It makes sense. And then part of it, I'd be curious if you agree as somebody who's dealt with it, but I was told that PTSD is an addiction. Really? In what way? Um, The way I was understanding it is that the addiction is in like, let's say the, the example I was given um, in this episode I'm releasing tomorrow was, let's say you're, if you step on a crack, you're going to break your mom's back. And so you do that. Now the rest of your life, you're looking for cracks. And so you're like addicted to avoiding that problem as opposed to, and, you know, as opposed to somebody who's just like, all right, it happened. Let's move on. You kind of get stuck and addicted into this cycle in your brain of I've got to avoid that trauma happening again. And I asked this person if he felt, um, and his name's Shaka. I keep saying this person and I had this, per- uh, he's a friend of mine. His name's Shaka. And I asked him, do you think that certain people have a propensity to PTSD? Because like, I look at people there's to me, like, again, from the 30,000 foot view, there's some people that just like are content that nothing bothers them. Um, and then there's others who are like really, really empathic and who are really sensitive to things. And he was like, those tend to be artists and those tend to be people who suffer from PTSD because events leave a big imprint on them as opposed to people who just kind of let things water off their back, but there's like a lack of emotion. There's not, they, you know, maybe just go to a nine to five, they come home, they just do a couple things, they get up and they're, they're happy with that. And not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm certainly not that person. 
And it's funny because I'm also the type of person who gets really caught up in individual moments and situations. And I'm sure like this whole week, I, I'm like, man, I have, I have PTSD. Like I, I really honestly feel that it's kind of strange to sit here on a podcast and say that. And it, I felt again, very cheap in ever even wanting to think it because I know so many people have had it worse, but right. Right. And you can't, you can't think that way. I never thought of it as an addiction. I would say it's interesting. I'm going to ponder that. That'll give me something to think about because I always thought of it as an innate reaction. I almost, I'm not, I'm not not even going to say almost I've had so many of the anxiety and the fight and flight responses throughout my life. I just thought that's how I was. Maybe I, I, I think I'm going to ponder the word addiction versus innate. Um, and I also wonder too, I very much wonder about folks who, like you say, uh, it, you know, runs off their back. Number one, they could have grown up in a very, very stable environment and they have a great sense of self. And so little stuff does run off their back. That's, that's awesome. I would love to be in that situation. And then I think there's also other folks who have grown up in neglectful environments that aren't traditionally traumatic because like there isn't like a harsh event, but through neglect, they've suffered a kind of a trauma, emotional trauma that dims their emotional capacity to some extent. Um, And they have a habitual response to things that they just refuse to feel. So it's, it's so individual in my opinion. And I'm I'm really going to think about that word addiction. I had never thought about that before. Do you have an addictive personality with other things? I don't think so. I think I have anxiety behaviors from when I was a kid. I'll, I'll twirl my hair like crazy. Like before I could talk, I didn't even talk till I was four. I was twirling my hair out of my head. It was one of the, one of my body's way of, you know, we've got a problem here and I've still carried that sometimes biting my lips. I've got anxiety behaviors. My body is still expressing, Hey, we're scared. We're we're a little concerned. And yet at a conscious level, I'm like, why? I'm just going to go walk the dog. <laughs> so I still have, I still have some work to do, but I don't know. I, I do think people say like addiction is really just a hurt of some way you're, you're kind, you're trying to. And that's, yeah, that's where my- he was kind of going with it, you know, and it, it resonated with me because yeah. I'm a, I'm addictive in a lot of ways, like physical fitness. Um, I played college, I was a college athlete. I played baseball. And once that was gone and out of my life, I got involved in powerlifting and then I got involved in jujitsu. And now that's taken over my life and this podcast and for the longest time work, like I dove into corporate America and that became my, my rock and the word addiction as I've pondered it and I please do, I'd I'd love for you to spend time like thinking about it because the more I thought about it, I kind of was like, man, maybe he's right. Maybe it is an addiction because I'm, I've used all of those things as a coping mechanism to deal with my trauma and the same way that somebody would use alcohol. And maybe it's not a physical addiction, but I'm certainly leaning on that to cover it up. And so I, it was like the chicken or the egg. Is it the response or is, am I actually creating some of this out of a, the, the reaction that I'm getting by creating the fire actually is giving me some, some, like some goodness. I it's, it's solving a problem for me. You know, like I, my wife has, has said, you know, little fires everywhere sometimes. And it's being able to put those fires out in a way is the coping mechanism. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's been where my head's gone ever since he told me that. Cause I never would have thought it was an addiction either. So, you know, what's interesting. You were talking about all the activities, which are totally impressive powerlifting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and 
one of the things I can't do well is slow down. I cannot slow down. I've always got to be doing, doing, doing. And this last six months was good. I was slower, but I was still writing a book. Da, da, da. Uh, I'm very much aware that it is hard for me to not be in activity because slowing down always brings some painful things to it. So I never really thought about it as addiction as maybe more, maybe more avoidance in my realm, but I'm going to, you got me thinking I'm going to be journaling now. (laughs) Maybe, maybe the listeners will be journaling too. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm really hopeful that this is like a great culmination and I'm actually excited. There's somebody I want to connect you with uh, a friend of mine. His name's Eben Britton. Uh, He's got a podcast called the Eben flow. He's a former NFL lineman and he was very successful. uh, I think first round draft pick, you know, made a lot of money, a lot of accolades, but when he left the league, he had a lot of injuries and was dealing with a lot of mental health issues, had a pill addiction. Um, and he dove headfirst into breath work and yoga and psychedelics. And he's a strong cannabis advocate and he's doing a lot of work just to try to help others really find themselves and maximize their potential. And I've had a, a number of conversations with him and uh, he's kind of going through a, a whole new awakening. And so I'm kind of excited to talk with him, but this is really the culmination of all of this discussion. And there's been a lot of buzz lately. As I talk with people across all spectrums of life, there's been a big focus here on trauma, PTSD, psychedelics, and trying to break that stigma, so to speak. And so uh, I'm really excited that uh, hopefully the, the maximum amount of people can pay attention to this that would be so. Yeah. And thank you very much for being brave enough to have this kind of topic on your podcast. Um, I think it's work that needs to get done and you know, you're one of the pioneers that's putting the information out there. So kudos to you. It's easy when I have people that put it together. I'm just, I'm just giving everybody a microphone. So it's, (laughs) uh, it's my pleasure, but thank you so much and good luck with everything, both with the book. I'm going to go grab a copy. I'm going to be shouting it from the rooftops and tell everybody else as well. Where can they find it? Is it just available on Amazon? It's on Amazon. And um, I'm, I literally just finished the audio book like last week. So hopefully that'll be up too for folks who like to walk and listen at the same time. So thank you. Thank no, you. fantastic. And you're, you uh, narrated it yourself. I did those poor listeners. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, that'll honestly with the uh, schedule I have coming up, that'll probably be what I do then is check it out in audio. So I'm glad that you told me that. Give it, give it a couple of weeks then. Cause it's got to go through their processes and stuff. But uh, that was a sound engineer. I am not, that was the, that was the worst part of the whole book process. <laughs> Any future books in the, in the works or in the thoughts? You know um, I had a phenomenal fourth journey that I did not write about because I don't think I was technically, I think I was technically no longer diagnosed with PTSD after the third one. So I didn't write about the fourth one. Um, all every, practically all my friends have just basically said, when's the next one? So maybe, maybe, um, I'll write up that journey, write up this one. Um, we'll see, we'll see what folks need. It's really not, it's really not about me getting my story out anymore. It's really more about what people might need in terms of further understanding the therapy and the process. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll be keeping an eye out if you do. (laughs) I really appreciate it a ton. Thank you so much for coming on and talking. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Certainly. Enjoy your night. Take care.